All right, we're going to be in Daniel 5 this morning, if you want to turn there. Daniel 5. I, I'm so excited to be here with you today. We, we were singing the praises of Jesus together, and it's just great to do that in different places with different bodies of people. Um, we are in small town Iowa. Lamar's has 10,000 people in it. Our claim to fame in Lamar's is that Blue Bunny ice cream is made in our town. So if you've ever had Blue Bunny ice cream, that's from us. You're welcome. We, sent that, we keep sending that to Chicago. You keep eating it. We'll keep making it. Um, uh, Mike and Becky are precious to us. Chris and I both were in the college ministry in Nebraska when they were college pastor there. And then after Mike had come here to Hammond and was, was new here at the church, Christian Fellowship Church, we, the, the group from Lincoln took, came here on a missions trip, and we worked on the building grounds and did some stuff and saw some sites in Chicago. But on that, on that trip here to, to Chicago, my wife and I were both here, and it was that trip that we started to have interest in each other. So really, your church is what brought us together, and our family, this is all fruit from you guys. So thank you for that, too. That was that's a blessing to us. So uh, we're, I'm excited to be here and to get to share the Word of God with you today. We, I just finished teaching through Daniel at our church, and so that's where we're headed today. Daniel chapter 5, we're going to read the story of Belshazzar this morning. Daniel chapter 5. Does it make sense to party like there's no tomorrow if there really is no tomorrow? Our world thinks, yes, that, well, if there's no tomorrow, we'd just as well have fun, Right? The Bible clearly says no. The Bible says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And we have here in this chapter, Daniel chapter 5, a striking illustration of the world and the way that our world thinks and operates. Belshazzar the king provides us with six reasons not to love the world. Okay, first reason why we should not love the world is this. Our world shuts its eyes to reality in order to enjoy itself right now. Our world, the world we live in, it shuts its eyes to what's real so that it can have fun right now. Look at Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Who's Belshazzar? For many years, as far as we knew from historical sources, there never was a king of Babylon named Belshazzar. The king of Babylon, when it fell, as far as we knew from ancient historians, his name was Nabonidus. And so skeptics pointed to this as an error in the Bible. They said, see, whoever wrote the book of Daniel didn't know what he was talking about. Daniel must have been written hundreds of years later by someone who didn't even know who the last king of Babylon was. The Bible is full of errors, they say. So look at Belshazzar. This isn't even a real person, they said. Until 1861, someone was doing archaeological work. Uh, in the Near East, and they found a tablet with the name Belshazzar. Now, with further archaeological work, we, there are no fewer than 37 texts that refer to this king of Babylon. And here's how the story goes. Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, as the ancient historian said. That's true. But we know now that Nabonidus, that king we know about from ancient history books, he spent the last 17 years of his reign away from his capital city of Bab Babylon. So who was in charge in Babylon Well, Nabonidus was spent these 17 years away? Well, it was his son, Belshazzar. It's interesting. Just the Bible's always true. 
And so people used to say, well, this, this, the Bible doesn't know. The ancient history books know more than the Bible does. But actually, the Bible knew more than those ancient historians. And when they dug in the, dug in the primary references, they found, well, yes, the, the Bible is true down to the details. Uh, obviously, it's written by Daniel. He lived at the time, and it's inspired by God. So Belshazzar is in charge in Babylon. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1 again. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Belshazzar throws this great feast. A thousand nobles are gathered here in his presence, and the wine is flowing freely. What's the purpose of this feast? Daniel doesn't mention it here, but outside the walls of Babylon at this very hour when they're having this feast is camped the Persian army. Nabonidus, just a few days before, had suffered a crushing defeat and had ran, run with what was left of his army. And, and Belshazzar and the rest of the people of Babylon hold up inside of the city. And surrounding the city is the Persian army. Seems a strange time to be throwing a feast as you're surrounded by enemies. Well, yes and no. See, Belshazzar and the rest of his people believed that the walls of their city were invincible. In over a thousand years of Babylonian history, no force had ever successfully stormed the walls of Babylon. The walls surrounding them were 330 feet high and surrounded by a moat, and the gates were strongly fortified. The Euphrates River flowed through Babylon. It came under the walls, and so they had all of the water that they would need forever. And Herodotus says that the Babylonians had stored up 20 years of provisions Herodotus even tells us something about the attitude and the words of the Babylonians as they sat on the walls, their attitude towards those who were surrounding their city. Basically, yeah, sit there as long as you want. We're fine in here, right? Here's what, they, here's what Herodotus writes. This is about a different siege that happened a few years later. But the Babylonians, however, cared not a whit for his siege. Mounting upon the battlements that crowned their walls, they insulted and jeered at the invader and his mighty host. One on the wall shouted ever to them and said, Why do you sit there, Persians? Why don't you go back to your homes till mules full? You will never take our city. So, yes, Belshazzar's city is surrounded, but he is convinced that he is invincible. He's not afraid of the Persians. So convinced is he in trying to pass along this confidence to his people, he throws a huge party, thousand nobles. Now, isn't the same thing true for us? In America, we're so consumed with our pursuits and with our pleasures that we, we just don't stop and consider the bigger picture. We don't stop and think about what really lasts, what really matters. I don't know if it's like this in, in Chicago, here in, in Indiana, but back in, in Lamar, small town Iowa, so many families, as their kids are growing up, they make it their number one priority in life to make sure that their children succeed at whatever the extracurricular activity is, if it's sports or music. And there's a few kids that do find great success in this thing that they're chasing. But, but then what, right? Say you win the state championship or you, you finish first at the national competition. You get a nice scholarship out of the deal. But, but then what? What's that worth? So many people, they work hard all of their lives. They work hard. They're, they're working extra hours. They're working overtime so that they can retire, right? They're looking forward to finally, I'm going to be done working and I can retire and I can enjoy my family. I can travel around and see all the things. But uh, have you noticed this? That so many people then, as soon as they get to that retirement age, well, then health things come up and they don't actually get to 
quite do the traveling and the enjoyment that they thought they were going to ahead of time. What was all that work for? This Feast of Belshazzar's, it's a picture of our world. We're so busy having, trying to have fun and enjoy ourselves that we block out the bigger picture. Belshazzar's just ignoring the fact that his, his, arm, his city is surrounded by Persian army because he's having a good time. And we do that in America too. All right, I'm going to have a good time here. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to retire. I'm going to have fun. But what about after that? Don't think about eternity. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Why not? First, because our world shuts its eyes to reality in order to enjoy itself right now. Secondly, because our world desecrates the holy things of God. Our world constantly desecrates the holy things of God. And this is the world we're going to love. Look at Daniel chapter 5, verse 2. When Belshazzar tasted the wine... He gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Belshazzar, Belshazzar tastes the wine. The word there, tastes, it implies that he not only tastes the flavor of the wine, but he's beginning to feel the effects of the wine. And at this drunken feast with all of his wives and his concubines and his nobles, the king decides to thumb his nose at Almighty God, the God of Jerusalem, the God of the Jews. Now, Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had conquered Jerusalem. He carried off the golden vessels used in the temple for the worship of God. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar had kept these vessels all of this time. He had kept them in storage somewhere, recognizing their holy nature, and they've not been using them. They're, they're captured, and they're in a storehouse somewhere. Belshazzar decides at this moment, when he's having this party all these years later, he wants to make a statement. He wants to declare that he is not afraid. He's not afraid of any army outside of his city. He's not afraid of the gods of any foreign nation. Well, why pick on Israel's God? If you're going to make a statement, why, why dig up these particular artifacts? Maybe Belshazzar is saying, you know my silly grandpa Nebuchadnezzar? At the end of his life, he revered this God. Well, I don't. I don't fear this God that Nebuchadnezzar used to fear. Maybe Belshazzar has heard Daniel's predictions from years before. Daniel had written that, written that Babylon was going to fall to the Persians. Right? And Daniel worships the God of the Bible. And so we don't know his motive. Maybe he's just drunk and not thinking. But for some reason, he calls for the holy vessels from the temple in Jerusalem to be pulled out of storage and to be used in the worship of false gods at this drunken party. He used them to toast his own idols. You see that in verse 4? He uses them to drink to the gods made out of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Okay, let me ask you. Does our world today desecrate the holy things of God, as Belshazzar was doing here? Do we take God's holy things and treat them lightly? We do. In our nation, every day, we desecrate God's holy name and don't even think about it, right? Just the other, oh, I don't know, a couple months back, we, uh, my wife, she was shopping online for a shirt for Becca, my daughter, and uh, she found something really cute, had a scarf that went with it, ordered it from Kohl's. And, uh, and so the, 
you know, you wait, and then it, it arrives on your doorstep, and you open it up, and they're like, oh, this shirt's nice. It looks just like it did in the picture, except now you can see it closer up than you can in the, uh, the picture online, right? And all over this scarf are the letters OMG, 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 OMG. You're like, oh, we can't wear that. Why would you want on, on a cute little shirt for a girl, why would you want to be desecrating God's name? Oh, my God, oh, my God. So obviously we returned it, complained a little bit. Not only do we desecrate God's holy name, but we, we murder those created in God's holy image, right? Think of the abortion plague that's upon our, our land. And every day, um, for our convenience, we kill those that were created in God's image. Not only that, but we, we take God's holy word, we take God's holy word and we, we twist it, we ignore what it says. It's almost like on purpose. <laughs> we, okay, here's what it says. I'm going to go the other way. Yesterday, we, um, my kids have never been in, in Chicago before. And so, and so we, uh, we, we went to visit the Field Museum, and we went to visit the, the Adler Planetarium. It was really fun. Uh, those are cool places. But we're, we're walking through the Adler Planet Planetarium, and there's this whole section that goes on and on. They must have spent a million dollars on this. And it's, we're we came from the stars. Did you know that you are stardust? This explanation said, right? Then you go to the Field Museum and you walk through the, the ages of evolution. See, God wasn't involved in our origin at all. And we're taking God's great evidence of his power. Creation, it's beautiful. Go look at Lake Michigan, right? So beautiful right outside the doors of these places. And we say, no, no, no. That must have just evolved. We're, we came from stars, right? We're we're desecrating God's holy creation. Um, his word, we twist that the other, uh, just a couple weeks, uh, months ago, I was, um, I was doing some counseling with a young couple. They're thinking about getting divorced, and they'd just gotten married. Um, so I was sharing the gospel with them, telling them about Jesus and, and how he gives life to those who trust in him and, and trying to see if they knew Jesus personally. And so I I was talking about Jesus and his character and God and his character. And, and the girl stopped me as I was going over this. And she says, well, Jesus, to me, Jesus isn't someone to fear. To me, Jesus isn't someone to fear. Jesus is, um, she said, he's, he's love and, and he's kindness. And Jesus isn't someone that I would bow before if I saw him. Jesus is someone I would hug. And she, there's some truth to what she's saying. Jesus is love right? She said, God just wants me to be happy. He wants me to do whatever would make me most happy. So she's just decided she's evaluating her marriage and trying to think, well, God would want to do, me to do what's going to make me most happy. So she's just trying to decide out, well, is it going to make me most happy to divorce my husband and leave him or to stay with him? Well, God, God's only input is going to be what makes you happy, do, right? And so I said, well, where did you get this idea about Jesus, that he just wants to make you happy. He's just here to hug you and support whatever you do. And she said, well, my pastor told me. Well, we're, we're taking God's holy things and we're desecrating them. That's not what God's holy word says about him. So we do the same thing that Belshazzar was doing. Don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. Our world desecrates the holy things of God. Thirdly, our world has no solution to the problems that really matter. Our world doesn't have a solution to the problems that really matter. Look at Daniel chapter 5, verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged, 
and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. We have a slide here. I don't know if they're prepared for it up there or not, but the archaeologists, they've uncovered this large throne room of Belshazzar's. And in his throne room, the, we, they've dug this up, right? And there's, there's this one wall, and it's a huge wall. The, the walls of the room are washed over with white gypsum. It's a perfect background for a hand to write upon. You've got this white wall, and the hand appears. It says in the text that it, it wrote on the wall near the lampstand, so everyone can see what's taking place. The hand does not go unnoticed. In one instant, the throne room moves from drunken revelry to sheer terror as a, as a disembodied hand appears and starts to write on the wall. Wouldn't we be a little afraid? I think so. What's this hand writing? It's Aramaic. And if what is written was written, if it was the common script of the day that it wrote it on, it would have looked like this on the wall. The king stands. He watches with everyone else this disembodied hand write. And as he's right, watching this happen, these words go on the wall. He, his face grows pale. His hip joints go slack. His knees begin knocking together. That phrase for his hip joints went slack, it's literally the knots of his joints were loosened. And what does that mean? Maybe he's standing there, right, and just immediately his legs give way and he falls down in a heap on the floor. Some scholars say, no, no, what's implied here, this is a nice way of saying that the king lost control of his bodily functions. Either way, so much for his pride now, right? His thoughts alarmed him. Well, what thoughts were going through this wicked king's brain? If his thoughts were, I have offended God, today I die, then he's on the right track. Look at verse 7. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Again, there's a detail in Daniel, right? Because there's Nabonidus, Belshazzar, he would be third. All the details in the Bible are accurate. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Verse 7, it says the king called aloud. The literal idea there. He started to scream for his counselors. Bring in the conjurers. Bring in the Chaldeans, the diviners. A theme that runs all through Daniel is the incompetence of this world's wisdom. The wise men, they came in all right. But for the third time in the book of Daniel, by this point in chapter 5, the king's wise men are of no use. They can't read the inscription, nor can they make known its interpretation to the king. It's puzzling that they can't read it. Because uh, as, as Daniel explains it later, it's just four common Aramaic words on, on the wall. Well, why, why could they? I mean, if you don't know what it means, why can they not read it? Are they drunk? Is it written in an unusual form? We don't know. What we do know, these guys are useless. And that's the point. That's what we're supposed to get. The guys, the experts come in. They don't know anything more than the king does. If you find yourself in trouble, if you find yourself in a situation that you can't understand, 
You don't know how to handle it. Who do you scream for? Verse 10. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Or we could read that, a spirit of the holy God. In the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. The queen enters the banquet hall. Who is this queen who walks into this room full of chaos with such calm and confident wisdom? Is it one of Belshazzar's wives? Is it one of the beautiful women of Belshazzar's harem? No, it's not them. They're already in the banquet hall. Look back in verse 3. We read that, second half of the verse. The king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines were there drinking with these uh, holy vessels. So if it's not them, who is this woman that's called the queen? Likely, this is Belshazzar's mother and one of the daughters of the great king Nebuchadnezzar. So... uh, you get Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has a son, his son has Belshazzar, uh, that's the setup of this. This is probably Belshazzar's mom that comes in, and if, it's his, if that's who it is, then we know her name from history too. Ancient history calls, gives her the name Nidocris, and she's noted in secular books for her wisdom. What she says here is wise. She says, get Daniel. You wonder about this queen. I wonder if she was a follower of the Most High God. Her father Nebuchadnezzar was late in his life. Is is this lady an old friend of Daniel's? She calls him twice by his Hebrew name. She calls him Daniel instead of his official Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. We don't know, but there's a lesson here for us. Belshazzar went to the wrong source. The queen went to the right source. Call for God's man. When you need answers to life's perplexing problems, don't be like these foolish kings of Babylon. When you need solutions to life's real problems, the things that are really difficult, don't start with Google. Don't start with your psychologist. Go straight to the holy God for his wisdom. Start by asking, what does God have to say? I've got this horrible thing going on and nobody knows how to help me. What do you have to say, God? That's the place to start. Listen, if God has something to say on the matter then whatever the world says is emptiness in comparison to God's truth. And if it's important, if it's really important, God will have something to say on the matter. And open up your Bible and read. You can go talk to your pastor, a godly person that you know. This is the wisdom that will help you in these these difficult things. I, I think what we do, I see this in my flock we think, well, with the ordinary problems of life, you know, day-to-day things, then I go to God and He helps me with that. But if I, if I face something really difficult, well, I'd need an expert. I'd need, you know, not just God's wisdom. If that, that applies to normal things. But this is hard. But shouldn't I do the opposite? If it's really hard, shouldn't I go to God? He's the creator. He's the all-wise one. His word has answers for us. We just skip them and we go other places. It's foolishness. Daniel 5, verse 13. What does 
God have to say? Daniel 5, 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now, I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now, the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make his interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make his interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar tries to bargain with Daniel from a position of strength, offering him power and riches in return for the explanation of the writing on the wall. Daniel, however, cares nothing for the emptiness of the king's reward. He despises that reward. What good is it to be third in the kingdom that's going to fall tonight? Right? I think I'd rather not be third in the kingdom. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to somebody else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Oh, Christian, don't, don't let the world appeal to you with its rewards. The rewards of this world, they're real and they're impressive, right? Everybody else is chasing them. The stuff and the glory and the power, the relationships, the things this world offers, right? Everybody's chasing those, and they look impressive, but those things, they pass away in an instant and they're gone. Daniel says, oh, keep your rewards, but I'll tell you wisdom. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Why not? Well, our world shuts its eyes to reality in order to enjoy itself right now. Our world desecrates the holy things of God. Our world has no solution to the problems that really matter. And fourthly, our world hates the thought of humbling itself before God. Our world hates the thought of humbling itself before God. Before Daniel interprets the writing on the wall, he gives the king some historical background. The king knew this already, but Daniel thought he'd remind him. Daniel chapter 8, verse, I mean 5. Daniel chapter 5, verse 18. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Verse 22, yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. Daniel sets up a contrast between Nebuchadnezzar, the grandpa, and Belshazzar, who's in charge now. Nebuchadnezzar truly was a great king of old. Open up any history book of the ancient Near East, you'll find Nebuchadnezzar. The entire world trembled before him. 
Nebuchadnezzar, he won his battles. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar killed who he wanted to kill. He elevated who he wanted to elevate. Daniel knew him personally. Belshazzar's greatest accomplishment was the ability to throw large parties with his grandpa's money. But even Nebuchadnezzar, who truly was great, even the great Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself before the Most High God at one time. At the end of his life, Nebuchadnezzar bowed before the Most High God. And certainly, if Nebuchadnezzar the Great recognized the Most High God, then, then so would Belshazzar, right? Wrong. Daniel chapter 5, verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and all your ways, you have not glorified him. Notice the contrast there between Belshazzar's gods and the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar's gods are made out of metal, wood, and stone. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't understand. The Lord of heaven, on the other hand, holds in his hand Belshazzar's very life breath. The Lord of heaven holds in his hand all of Belshazzar's ways, Daniel says. You know, this is true for all of us. Whether we trust in Jesus or whether we refuse him, he holds in our hand our ways, our life breath. There was a, a preacher once, Jonathan Edwards. He preached these words to his congregation in New England. Listen to what he said. Same idea as what Daniel's saying to the king. Jonathan Edwards wrote, or preached to his congregation, You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire at every moment. Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night that you was suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. You see, uh, this, the one that our culture is so intent on blaspheming at every turn, he is the very one that holds our lives and our destinies in his hand. Why do we insist on cursing the one that holds us, that can save us, Right, because God isn't a God that wants to let us drop into hell. He wants to save us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. He's risen again. He offers a free gift of life. If you'll just come and say, Jesus, I trust in you. You've died and you've risen again. And yet we curse him. And we say, no, no, you didn't make us. I came from stars. I evolved over millions of years. I don't believe your word. Why do we do that? We just, it's not, it's not knowledge that we're lacking it's humility before God. We don't want to bow our knee before Him. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Why not? Well, our world hates the thought of humbling itself before God. And fifth, our world's way of life fails to pass the inspection of our holy God. Our world's way of life fails to pass the inspection of our holy God. As our God looks on the way that our world lives, that we live here in America, just the everyday life that everybody does, this way of life doesn't pass his inspection. He doesn't say, okay, good enough. Look at verse 24. Let me put those words back up on the wall. I'm finally getting to them. 
Daniel 5, verse 24. Uh, if I can find the right place. Daniel 5, 24. Then the hand was sent out. Daniel's explaining to the king now what the hand wrote. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Huparsin. This is the interpretation. Now, the words themselves, um, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Huparsin, uh, it means numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Daniel's going to tell them this, verse 26. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. And then there's this parase. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. So Daniel tells him what it means. You've been numbered. You've been weighed. Numbered is there twice. You've been counted. God's seen. He's counted. You've been weighed. And then he says this parase word. And that word, it's funny. The, if you put different vowels with the same letters that, that spell parase, it can either mean divided or it can mean Persia. And it is Persia's armies that are sitting around the city. God says, I've inspected your life, Belshazzar. You failed the test, and so now I'm bringing your life and your kingdom to an end. You know, the this, this same judgment that God announced on Belshazzar is true of every human, every human who stands before God without the blood of Jesus Christ applied to him. We, we like to think, oh, you know, I'm not so bad. My, my friends aren't so bad. Um, you know, when God judges me, I think he's going to see that I'm doing better than a lot of the people around me. God's going to be merciful. But listen, this is a lie. This is a lie of Satan. Without Jesus Christ and his blood having cleansed you, when you stand before God, America's no better than Babylon. You are no better than Belshazzar. We're going to fail the test because there's sin. Our only way of salvation is to admit our failure before our day of judgment comes, right? Before the handwriting is on the wall for us. And to say, okay, God, I see. Jesus died for me. He rose again. I trust in him. You're, I'll give myself to you. Thank you for life. But Belshazzar, his, I don't know if this is even repentance, but it's coming too late for him. Look at verse 29. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave orders. And they clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Hooray! <laughs> right? This kingdom's falling tonight, but they make him third in charge nonetheless. You know, the best that the world has to us, it's, it's so fleeting, it's not even worth having. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Why not? Our world's way of life fails to pass the inspection of God. So if I live the way my neighbors do, I'm going to fail to pass that inspection. I need Jesus to cleanse me. And then sixthly, our world's judgment is right around the corner. Our world's judgment is right around the corner. Look at Daniel 5, verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Daniel, it's interesting, he leaves out all the details of Babylon's fall, but we know them from other historians. Babylon's walls were unassailable. There's no way you could get in. The Persians knew they couldn't get in. And so what they did, they diverted the Euphrates River that ran under the city. They diverted it so that some of the water went a different way, and the water that went through the city was lowered. And then they, the channels that, 
that went into the city, underneath the city, you could walk through it. Because there's room, there's air for you to breathe. And so the soldiers of the Persian army walked under the walls into the, into the city while, Bab- while Babylon is having this feast. And all the nobles, everybody important, they're at the party. They're not watching the walls. They're not watching the river. And so the, Bab- the Persian army comes in through the riverbed. And there's no major battle that night. We read about this. The Persians were mostly welcomed as they entered the city. When the Persian commander led his soldiers into the king's palace, they found Belshazzar there with a dagger about to kill himself. Xenophon says that they overpowered and avenged themselves upon the wicked king. Even the second-legend historians say this guy's wicked. So ends the life of Belshazzar. So ends the greatest kingdom that the world had known to this point. Listen to 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world... Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Belshazzar now is dead. But who is left standing at the end of this chapter? Daniel is still standing. The simple servant of the Most High God who simply obeyed God's word, he proved to have more staying power than the king of the mightiest nation of the world. What's the message of Daniel 5? Well, I think the message, it depends on your relationship with Jesus. If you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, if you have not yet received Him, the message of this chapter is simple. Humble yourselves before God and come to Him before it is too late because the writing is on the wall and the time is going to be quick. We don't know when it's going to come, but it's not far away. That's the message if you don't know Christ of this. Don't be like Belshazzar and wait until it's too late. But, but what about those of us who have received Jesus? What, what does this chapter have to say to us? I think the story is, is this. You see, the world, it's inviting us to its pleasures. And it's, it's always trying to tell us this is better. These pleasures are better than what Jesus offers to you. And it's inviting us to join in these pleasures. And Belshazzar is an example for us. Hey, wait a minute. What lasts? What matters? It's not the stuff of this world. The world's surrounded, right? The world's on its way down, even now as we speak. But we belong to the kingdom that is yet coming. We belong to Christ. Let's not fall in love with the things that are on their way out the things that displease our Father. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for what you have given to us in Jesus Christ. It is such a, uh, a privilege that we do not deserve to have eternal life. Jesus has won that for us by what he's done on the cross. And he's coming again to reign. We pray for us as your people that we might, we might continue to trust and follow you and live for those things that really matter and last. In Jesus' name, amen.